reason we're spending time on it is because it's, it's one of the goals of the book, foundational purpose of the book. Um, but what is it? What do you remember? What do we say? It's a goal of wisdom. Good. All right? Now, that's why we have wisdom. That's what wisdom is aiming at. Wisdom is not just to give us, uh, help us, our lives be hunky-dory. Um, life does go better when you function the way God um, set it up to work. Um, but the goal is righteous living. Um, what is righteousness? Do you remember what we said? This is a life that is what? It's in line with God's character. God's character that's revealed in his law. It's a life that lines up with what God has commanded, what he has made known. And then the first week, uh, we really spent our time talking about fleshing out what is righteousness, and especially how does Proverbs define righteousness? How does Proverbs relate to the law? And we said that the book of Proverbs builds on the law. It explains the law. It applies the, the law. In other words, the book of Proverbs isn't content with mere external conformity to God's law. It goes at the heart. It, it goes at character and personhood. Um, it's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. It, it, it's saying true righteousness consists not in just these the, 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 the external conformity to God's law. That should be there. But it's a matter of the heart. That's uh, where, it, where it begins. Um, we saw that Proverbs really focuses on fleshing out the second half of the Ten Commandments, which are primarily aimed at horizontal relationships, and which are actually built on what? On Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the essence of the law. Um, that's what the New Testament says. That's the fulfillment of the law, love your neighbor. And so we concluded sort of with a summary like, like this. In Proverbs, righteousness consists of genuine self-sacrificial love for others. The essence of wickedness is advantaging yourself on the disadvantage of others. And we saw that through a number of the lectures. And righteousness consists of disadvantaging myself for the good of the advantage of others. So that, that, that's really what Proverbs is aiming at. Um, and in the second week, we talked about well, what is the function of God's law in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because uh, as believers, we're clearly not under the law of Moses. But we are still under law. We're not lawless. What are we under? We are under the law of, law of Christ in the New Testament. We're, we're, we don't... Get into God's people by submitting to Mosaic regulations, circumcision, and ceremonial laws, but through faith in Christ. But that doesn't mean that we are now free to live how we want. We are under God's law as it's expressed in, in Christ. His moral law is still applicable to us. Um, and at the core of that law is love as well. So we concluded that that second lesson with two functions of the law. Do you remember what they are? We've talked about them pretty much every week so far. What are the two functions of God's law? Exposes to sin. Very good. Expose sin and drive us to Christ. That's number one. Old Testament and New Testament. It's a mirror. We set ourselves against it, we fail. Uh, it's to reveal our sin, reveal our shortcomings. Proverbs is going to do this over and over. That's the first function of it. Expose our sin, drive us to Christ. Then what's the second function of the law? Do you remember? To uh, direct our lives. Very good. It's a roadmap. 
for faithful living. It's not the way we're going to get into relationship with God, um, but it's the way that we respond, express our faith, express our love to him. Since we have been so forgiven, since we have been so loved, uh, this is how I want to express it. I want to follow him. I want to obey him. I trust him. It's the roadmap for our lives. And then last week, we discussed um, who are the righteous. We said in one sense, there is no none righteous. No, not one, right? That's according to the first function of the law. It exposes sin. You can't be justified by the thing that reveals your sin. Um, so there's none righteous, but in another sense, are there righteous people? Yes, there are. The Bible talks about them all the time. It says, this man was righteous. He walked blamelessly before the Lord. Well, what do you do with that? Um, Proverbs talks about the righteous person over and over again. Well, it's clearly not saying this person has fulfilled absolute perfection, nor has he attained justification by law-keeping. Well, it's, it, it has to, it accords with the second function of the law. It's not a perfect person, but it's a person of faith, a person of repentance, a person who desires to bring his life up under um, God's law. It's a repenting sinner. That's what we talked about last week. We unfolded who they, who they are. Encourage you to give an outline if, if you weren't, weren't with us. Um, this is how we concluded last week, and this is what I want to talk about this week. Um, just how important is it to bear righteous fruit? Is righteous works, are righteous works essential? Or are they just icing on the cake? If we are justified and saved by faith, then is bearing righteous fruit the actual doing of righteous works really that important? Will they play any role in the final judgment? And what does Proverbs mean when it promises eternal life for those who do righteous works? What's going on? Um, and so my goal is to work through some of these questions. So look in your outline. The first question is, is there a judgment according to works? Immediately, uh, you're feeling a tension, and we're going to work through this work through this tension. So I want to talk in Proverbs first, and then we'll go to the New Testament. Proverbs states that righteous works not only bring blessing and reward, but they also lead to eternal life and deliverance from death. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. We've got to go fast. we got a lot of references to go. All right, chapter 10, verse 2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Verse 16. The wage of the righteous leads to life. Chapter 11, verse 4. Righteousness delivers from death. Chapter 12, verse 28. And the path of righteousness is life. It's eternal life. And in its pathway, there is no death. Chapter 14, verse 32. It's clearly not talking about um, you're not going to physically die. Everyone's going to physically die. It's talking about something beyond the grave. Look at this verse. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. So Proverbs is promising life, genuine life that outlasts the grave to those whose lives are characterized by righteous works. What do we do with this? Um... In your, in your free time, you could go over to chapter 24, verse 10 to 12. It, it clearly says, Will the Lord not repay man according to what he has done? So what do we do with this? Um, it's clearly attention. 
We've talked about how righteousness, uh, how, right, how Proverbs even knows and talks about the way to salvation is by repentance and faith. Justification is by faith. It's all through the scriptures. And yet we have this tension of there's going to be a judgment according to works. Only those whose lives are characterized by righteousness. You know, I, I always think yeah. of the, uh, the thief on the cross next to yeah. Jesus. And he repents at the very end. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, Yep. Jesus says you'll be with me in paradise. Well, he hasn't had time to, mm-hmm. to quote, build up any righteous works in sure. his life. So, I mean, that tension there is glaring. Yep. yep. Or maybe he, it, so, uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk about the functions sort of, of righteous works. What are they? Uh, but I think he did, actually. Even in the, the last few moments, the yeah, that, yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. that. That's what real righteousness is. Yep. Yep. True faith. Yep. 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 Um, so, good. So, um, so all we can say so far is that justification and salvation are by faith alone. And yet, in another sense, righteous deeds will play some kind of role. We're going to define what that is in a minute. But they, they're going to play some kind of role in the final judgment. Um, so before we move on to explain what that kind of role is, I want to show you that not only does Proverbs in the Old Testament talk like this, but the New Testament does as well. Go to Matthew chapter 16. I've got to go very fast here. I've got a lot of, a lot of content. Um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Your life is devoted to saving your life, you're going to lose your soul. If your life is characterized by taking your cross, you're going to, you're going to save it. He's going to re- re- reward you according to what you've done. Go to Romans chapter 2. Maybe I, I, I think next week, I want to stay on this topic and flesh it out more because it's just so pervasive in the scriptures. Probably going to spend a lot of time next week in Romans 2. Um, but let me just read it really quickly for you. Romans 2 verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. This is in the same letter that Paul says justification is by faith alone. What is going on here? We're going to talk about that. But first, let's just see it. It's there. There is some sense in which works will function uh, in the judgment. And then you can go to Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 through 10 for the, the same principle. So that's where the New Testament generally speaks about it. Second, um, the fact that works play some role in judgment is seen in the New Testament threats given to those whose lives are characterized by sin. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says the same thing three times. You look at the three different uh, places he says this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes in the sons of disobedience. So if your lives are characterized by sin, you will be repaid for it. You will not go to heaven. You will not enter the kingdom. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 21. It says a very similar thing. Galatians 5, 21. He's given these works of the flesh, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about entering heaven. And he is talking to professing believers here. If your lives are characterized by these things, you're not going to heaven, he says. What do we do with that? Look at one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 through 11. You know the context here probably. The Corinthians are um, characterized by um, revenge. They're, they're being wronged and they're dragging the person to court, trying to wrong them, pay them back. Um, look what Paul says in verse 7. He says, have lawsuits at all with one another. It's already a defeat for you. Why not rather just suffer wrong? Why not just be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And the, the verse really gets its punch when you realize in verse 8, when he says, you yourselves wrong, it's the same word for unrighteousness. You yourselves do unrighteousness and defraud even your own brothers. So don't you realize that those whose lives are characterized by unrighteousness like this, unrepentant of, they're not going to heaven. They're not going to inherit the kingdom. Don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and it continues, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there is a sense in which one's works will play a kind of role. If your life is characterized by these things, you will not inherit the kingdom. Proverbs is not joking. The New Testament says the same thing. Number three, only those whose lives are characterized by true righteousness will enter the kingdom. Look at Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. My point here is to say, the New Testament is saying exactly what Proverbs is saying. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now it's true, what's going on here in the Sermon on the Mount is sort of that first function of the law, saying, you are a Pharisee, you haven't met the full standard of the law. Later Jesus is going to say that you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. It's to drive you back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, so you be poor in spirit, you mourn of your sins, and you cast yourself on the Lord for, for mercy. That's the first function, but Jesus here is also saying that he expects his disciples to possess a kind of righteousness that actually does supersede that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's an expectation for the disciples of the kingdom to possess this kind of righteousness. Um, 
And we find out what this means in the following verses. It's not this external righteousness I give in order to be seen by others. And I don't murder and I don't commit adultery, but it's a genuine righteousness of the heart. The Pharisees liked the externals, and that was it. Jesus says what must characterize the disciples of the kingdom, those who enter the kingdom, is a true righteousness more than that of the scribes and Pharisees. And we get uh, a hint of this down when he's talking about adultery and lust. Look at verse 29. He expects this of his disciples. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. In other words, what characterizes disciples, members of the kingdom, is that they have a true internal righteousness that opposes and hates sin. Not perfect but has a disposition towards sin. That's true, genuine righteousness. You keep reading. Um, talks about doing your righteous deeds not to be seen by others. It's a genuine love for righteousness because of your love for the Father. And in chapter 7, verse 17, Jesus says, Every healthy tree must bear good fruit. A diseased tree bears bad fruit. Then down, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Well, what is that? Well, it's clearly the fruit that he just talked about. And the fruit is clearly the virtues of the kingdom that he's been talking about in this whole section. And then you can look at the very conclusion, verse 21 through 27. The wise man is not the one who just hears. He's the one that hears and does what Jesus commanded. So these are those who will... Inherit the kingdom. So, um, that's the first point. Is there a righteousness, uh, is there a uh, judgment according to works? And there is. Those whose lives are characterized by wickedness will not inherit the kingdom. And only those whose lives are characterized by genuine righteousness will inherit the kingdom. So, what do we do with this now is the question. And you're probably feeling attention. You should feel attention because we know that one is justified by faith alone. And yet, at the same time, works are essential. So, so how do we deal with this? What do we do here? It's true that we are saved by faith alone, and yet without righteous fruit, you will not inherit the kingdom. So um, this is what I want to do for the, the rest of our, of our time. I want to summarize it, um, sort of how I think it works, what I think is going on in Proverbs and the rest of the Bible. In the next week, um, we're going to look at some major, uh, major passages on it. So let me try to summarize what I think is, is happening here. Works are important. They're even essential. Not because they add anything to our justified status, but because they are the inevitable fruit of a heart that's been born again. A heart of faith and a heart that's been filled with the Spirit of Christ. Put it another way. Our works are not the root of our justification. But they are the fruit that testify to it. They are not the ultimate grounds for my salvation. I am not justified by works, nor do my works contribute anything to my standing before God. We are declared fully righteous, having the entire record of Christ's righteousness imputed to our account at the first moment of saving faith. That is our ground. That is our root. That alone 
Nothing we do adds or takes away from that. Ever. Paul rebuked the Galatians for this heresy. Um, Those who wanted to receive Christ, but they wanted to add circumcision to it. Paul says that, look, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you, he says. Reliance on Christ for 99% and on works for 1% equals no justification, no salvation. That's not what we're talking about. We're not saying that works add anything to Christ's work. Rather, it actually nullifies it. Christ alone is our root. That is what we're saying. If you rely on law-keeping, you're bound to keep the whole law. And therefore, you're under a curse because you can't. Works add nothing to our status, neither before nor after conversion. And they must never be relied on as a ground of our hope. So they're not root. They're not foundation. Rather, they're fruit. Not root, but they are fruit. They're not the ground. They're not the cause. They're not the reason for our justification. They don't add anything to our status before God. Every text we read, that's not what it's talking about. Rather, they are the essential inevitable fruit and result and proof and evidence that true faith is in my heart. That life is functioning in my heart. That the Holy Spirit indwells my heart. In other words, all the texts we examined so far in Proverbs and the New Testament are not joking about how important works are. They're essential. Wicked lifestyles will be paid be repaid with wrath and righteousness will result in eternal life. But how do they function? They're not root. They're not adding anything. But they're fruit that testifies to the change of heart. Our works will be examined on the final day of judgment, not as foundation, but as evidence to what we profess through our lives. Did I have genuine faith? Faith produces fruit. Did I have the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit produces fruit. They will be evidence. And proof of the profession. The only thing that will matter is, did I have a living faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which bore righteous fruit in my life? Or to use Paul's language, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith that works itself out in a life of love. That's what matters. So righteous works are essential, not because they are root, but they are Let me just show you Jesus' paradigm, and this will be our last text. Go to Matthew chapter 12. This is how Jesus thought of it. This is what he said over and over again. Chapter 12, verse 31. The context here is Jesus is responding to these false accusations of the Pharisees. Uh, They've been saying that he's casting out demons by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. And Jesus now is going to expose the Pharisees and, and actually show what their, what their destiny is based upon what they have said. Look at verse 31. It says, Therefore I tell you, every sin, blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks, notice the emphasis on speaks, a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now look where he goes. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, 
or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? In other words, you Pharisees, you are not able to speak good. It's not in you. The reason you're blaspheming me and blaspheming the Holy Spirit is because you are evil. The words don't make you evil or good. They testify to what's going on in your heart. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth is the clearest picture of what's going on in there. Then look where Jesus goes. He goes to the final judgment in verse 36. I tell you, on the judgment day, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. So is Jesus here saying that your words are going to add to your justified status? That you're gonna, they're going to make you more justified before God? Or they're going to be make you unjustified before God? Is that what he's talking about? It's clearly not what he's talking about. Because of the context. What is he saying? You're going to be justified, not in the sense that that's going to be the foundation, the root of your acceptance before God, but you're going to be justified means what? It means that the words will give the clearest evidence to the true nature of your heart, whether you're a good tree or you're a bad tree. In other words, good speech does not make us righteous. Rather, we speak good words. We love and receive Christ because we've already been declared righteous. Because we've already been united to Christ and been born again. The Pharisees are going to be condemned, not because they didn't have enough good speech to outweigh the bad. Rather, their blasphemous speech revealed that the nature of their heart was they didn't know God. They didn't have any faith. So will there be a judgment according to works? There will. Well, how will the works function? They're not going to add anything to our standing in Christ. But they're important. Proverbs says they're important. The New Testament says they're important. Because they are the essential, inevitable evidence that faith has taken place. That the Holy Spirit is in your life. They're important. Next week, I, I hope to continue this topic a little bit more. It's, it's so neglected in evangelicalism today. Um, it's important. It's everywhere. Uh, but I want to finish by just giving you some caveats, encouragements, cautions. Just to chew on as we, as we go. Number one, while it is true that genuine righteousness must be born in a believer's life, genuine righteous works. Again, we're not talking about perfection. We saw last week that that's not what's going on here. It's not that you you've, uh, have some attain the, the sinless perfection. You're never going to be perfect. You're in the flesh, but... You're still bearing fruit. And it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with the amount of fruit, but the reality of the fruit in your life. It's not perfection that's at, at, at stake. It's reality. It's genuine fruit there. It's not a matter of whether the fruit will be enough. I don't want anyone leaving thinking, is my fruit going to be enough that day? Jesus isn't going to be standing there with a ruler to measure. Is it enough? Um, that's not the point. But rather... Is there genuine fruit in your life? Persevering fruit in your life? Is there fruit present? Is there a persevering desire for obedience? A persevering repentance when sin is discovered? Is there a persevering opposition to sin in your life? That 
It's the evidence that Christ is in you. That is what is going to be brought forth the judgment seat. Not foundation. Don't rest in that. It's not your fruit that saves you. It's Christ. Keep your eye on him. Don't rest in your fruit, but don't rest without fruit. Where Christ indwells the heart, the fruit is always produced. And that is what will be examined. Christ alone is our foundation. So be encouraged. Keep your eye on him. Number two, live with the two functions of the law constantly at your side. As we've heard these texts read, if you're like me, you've been pricked. You've been pierced in your heart. You've convicted. I've fallen short. That's the first function of the law. We never neglect that. As I'm reading God's law, I am exposed every time as failing it. That's a gift of God to be exposed like that. You embrace the first function of the law. Love it. Run to Christ. That's what it's for, to reveal us. Of course we're unrighteous. Of course we failed. Let the law drive you to Christ in repentance and faith and cling to him afresh. That's the first function of the law. Keep that with you. But then, flowing from your confidence in Christ, flowing from your faith in his word, flowing from your love and thanksgiving and trust in him, seek to align yourself to his will out of the power of the spirit that has been given to you. And that will be the clearest evidence that your faith is true, that you've been united to him. Don't rest in your works, but don't rest without works either. Rest in Christ alone is your only hope for peace with God. Make that your only foundation. Rock of ages, cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Let that always be our confession. To the day we die. Resting Christ alone is your only hope for peace with God, but do not rest if your faith somehow remains alone and void of actual fruit in the pursuit of Christ. And um, we need this. We need this message to be with us to the day we die. The Lord gives us warnings like these things in the, in the Bible. He, he, he shows us how important it is we're bearing fruit, so we never grow casual in our lives. It's perseverance that in our lives. And, and also it's important to be equipped so as we disciple and help one another. Think of Mrs. Lynn at TCS, discipling kids and others that work where we are. We need truth. And these are massive truths the scripture gives us for our lives and for others. So I flew through that. Um, is there any questions, comments? Um, I want to stay on this, I think, I, I, I might change my mind, but next week I want to look at a few major passages, especially Romans 2. It's massive, and it's glorious, and Paul brings all of these things um, together in it. Um, and then, uh, probably a, another one or two weeks, we'll stay on this topic of righteousness, because it, it, it's just huge in, in Proverbs. Um, but my goal this morning is to say Proverbs isn't saying anything else than the rest of the New Testament is saying and I think this is the paradigm in, in Proverbs. Where does the righteous works come from? It comes from wisdom. What is wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? It's faith. It's trusting and taking it by his word. So, any questions, comments? It's good. Scriptures are beautiful. Yeah, they are piercing. It's a sword that cuts and it heals at the same time. Let me pray.